Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to Time to Adapt. Where we break down movies and the books behind them. Yes. As <laughs> always, I am joined here with the amazing Selena Allen. Hello, everybody. And... And this is Mac, as you all know. <laughs> off, we're off to a good start. <laughs> yeah, so... Today, we decided to talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the world because it's delightful and it's fun and it's just a very wholesome. It is. It's just wholesome all around. And it happens to be one of my all time favorite movies. I had a really good experience seeing it in theaters twice. Uh, apparently, I was one of the only people who did see it in theaters. So. He has some beef about it. Yeah, I do. We'll get into that <clears throat> later. Yes, we will. But we're going to kind of go into how did we get involved with how did we learn about Scott Pilgrim so Selena well how did I, you first hear of it? I actually didn't know when I first watched it I did not know it was an adaptation of a graphic novel series so I was just I thought it was just a fun cool movie also I've loved metric since I was 13 so anything that they've breathed on I've like looked at so knowing that they had a song in it definitely made me happy so, yeah, I'll probably gush about Metric because I literally have no chill when it comes to them. Just, mm. I cried at their last concert because, <laughs> yeah, I'm that nerd. <laughs> but, yeah, that I don't remember exactly when I first watched the movie. I think I had just, um, I think I must have gotten, like, the ordered the DVD off of Netflix when that was still a thing before streaming. Mm-hmm. What a world. But what a world. you know they still do that. I damn. Low key just like blew my mind a bit. <laughs> I thought that was over with. Nope. It's it's a thing. GVDs. Okay. <clears throat> I have some new knowledge now. So <laughs> anyways, how was your experience? Like what was the first you said you watched it in theaters? I saw it in theaters um like oh, two weeks before the movie came out. Um, I heard an interview with the creator, Brian Lee O'Malley, on NPR. And it was like two to three weeks before the uh, the movie premiered, O'Malley put out the final volume of Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim's Finest Hour, Volume 7. And so he was discussing um, the book, discussing what he, um, all the hype around the movie, and what to expect about it. And I thought, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. I think I'll go see this. And then like a couple weeks later, I went to the, I went to a screening at, um, saw a beautiful 35 millimeter at, uh, my local, the local forest mall cinema, which is now defunct. That was a sad day, but I was one of maybe five people in the audience, oh, that's but sad. all five of us had the time of our lives watching it. Yeah. And I spent the next week, telling all of my friends, see this movie, it's incredible, it's the best thing I've seen all year, blah, 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 and almost everyone was like, I think I want to go see that Twilight spoof movie, that sounds like more fun, and most of them were like, that movie was awful, and I'm like, well, I fucking told you. Well, yeah, it wasn't supposed to be good, it's like the Starving Games, or what's that epic movie? Well, yeah, <laughs> but the thing is, the producers and the actors think that they're making a good movie. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, back on tar- on track. So, just uh, for those who don't know what Scott Pilgrim is, it's a it's a comic series 
um, about a Canadian named Scott Pilgrim. He is a slacker and a part-time musician who lives in Toronto, Ontario, and plays bass guitar in a band. Sex bob Sex bob <laughs> Sex bob <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just Christ. quoting a little bit of the movie. Uh, he falls in love with an American delivery girl named Ramona Flowers, but must defeat her seven evil exes in order to date her. Um, yeah. It's it's pretty wild. It's a fun little journey. Yes. So, yeah. So, um the it's the the movie is based off of a series of graphic stories, um graphic novels really, uh by Brian Lee O'Malley. Um there are six different um volumes. Also, I realized that earlier I said there was a seventh volume that was wrong. I just I it's if early. You- it's early in the morning, people. <laughs> So, yeah. yes, it was released by the independent comic publisher based out of Portland, Ani Press. And it's um, later republished by Fourth Estate, which was an imprint of HarperCollins, in these beautiful full-color hardbacks that I've been trying to get for a very long time. And what's, I, what's funny is that in the comics, there's a ton of fourth wall breaking. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of times where, like there's one bit in um, Volume 2 where... They make a reference to how Ramona has changed her hair color. It goes, hey, I change my hair color every every uh, other week. You know, you should get used to that. And then, like, there's a little thing at the asterisk at the end of the thing. It says, "Fun fact: this graphic not this this comic is in black and white." <laughs> and the what's funnier is a lot of the there's a lot of those jokes, um, in in the colorized versions. They purpose they 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 purposely like point that out mm-hmm. again. So the exact same panel, except at the bottom says, fun fact, this was funnier in black and white. <laughs> so it's, it's very self-aware, which I, yeah. which I like. It's, uh, yeah, they, I don't know. They're, they're very witty when it comes to jokes. <laughs> so, uh, the creator, Brian Lee O'Malley was inspired to create the series and the character after listening to the Canadian band Plum Trees, 1998 single Scott Pilgrim. In the movie, you see him wearing a plum tree T-shirt. Yep. I know there's... You also hear the song play when, uh, during the first montage of him with knives. Oh, okay, yeah. So... Oh, knives, for those who don't know. He, uh, before he meets Ramona, he's dating... Well, also while he's seeing Ramona, he's dating the 17 Fake high school girlfriend. Yeah. And it's... It's a little creepy... Yeah. It's just a little creepy, but um, product of its time, sort of, because the, com- the the graphic novels came out and, like, they isn't, started coming out, like, in 2000. Isn't the age of in Canada different, though, from here? Um, I thought it was. I'm going to check this. Age of Consent in Canada. We only, Not a we only asked. Search, we only asked. Curi- out of curiosity. We only asked the serious questions, <laughs> the important questions. Here. Yeah, because we were so. actually talking about this uh, when we watched the movie. We were like... Sixteen. Oh, see, so it's it's fine there. Okay, hmm. that's the more you know. Yeah. So yes. Um, yeah, because we were talking about this uh, after we watched it, because we we're just like, yeah, the age different for American audiences, like it's super weird. But I guess in other countries, it's just like n- not necessarily normal, but like it's more accepted. Yeah. More acceptable. Uh, Whereas, like, you have a 20-something-year-old dating a basically a high schooler. That's a little 
22. 22. 22. So, uh, oddly enough, when um, the pl- the singer of Plum Tree at the time, Carla Gillis, had described um, the song itself, Scott Pilgrim, as positive but also bittersweet. In particular, O'Malley was inspired by the certain song lyric, I've Liked You for a Thousand Years, which plays over and over in like the first like minute and a half of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to write a shonen style comic book series, although he only had read one at the time, or one series, one such series at the time. Because at this point, even though manga is really huge now in like mm-hmm. America and Canada, at the time it was still relatively obscure. Yeah. So all of this stuff that like now, like you look at the Scott Pilgrim comics, you're like, oh, this is like totally. This, yeah, it makes sense. It you makes can sense, see that some of the influence. It was relatively ahead of its time in how it was and when it was. Uh, when it came out, so yeah, and the series that he was like uh, that he drew some inspiration. Well, the only one that he'd read at the time was Ranma, uh, one and a half, a half, one half. Okay, I don't know how, to, but yeah, in the yeah. So as Mac was saying, yeah, in the early two thousands, it had Japanese manga had not achieved significant popularity in North America. The, the movie also the um. The, co- the graphic novels used black and white because it was less expensive, um, creating the series in color, and so he embraced the aesthetic full-handedly, and it yeah. and it works. It really does work. Um, oddly enough, like in volume four, the first like twenty pages, not twenty, like ten pages, are in color because there's like a aesthetic choice there, and it and it really works well. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if I mean I haven't seen volume four yet. Of the colorized version, but honestly, I think they they missed a golden opportunity by by printing that part in black and white in the colorized versions. I think that would have been hysterical. But anywho, <clears throat> uh, he only expected Scott the the first Scott Pilgrim volume to sell about a thousand copies, and he n- did not expect it to sell millions of copies and then produce the film adaptation. Yeah, he was kind of taken aback by all of it. Uh... Because he, yeah, as he was like, I just kind of want to make this for fun. And because I have this idea in my head and yeah, he was just was kind of taken aback by so many people really liking it. Um, yeah, he said, he cited just like talking about how the United States comic industry is very different than the Japanese comic industry. And that the United States comic book com- company specialized in superhero comics and many newer concepts uh, originate from underground comics. So, yeah, and also the United States, it lacks weekly and monthly comic book magazines. And American uh, comic companies generally do not have a system of story editors and assistants that Japanese comic companies have. Hmm. But, yeah, fun hmm. little fact. Yeah. <laughs> so, a little background on the film. Um, the film was released in 2010, August of 2010, if I, my memory states correct. Um, and it starred Michael Sarah as Scott Pilgrim. Now, what was funny is when the movie when the movie was announced, there was a little bit of backlash because everybody thought Michael Sarah can he like punch a person? <laughs> at, at that point, you know, he had just been known really for Arrested Development and Superbad. So, whenever when everyone was like, "Oh, he's gonna play he's gonna play this ass kicking base Canadian bass player," everyone was like, "Well, I mean, wait, was Juno and Juno? Oh, well, right? Juno, yeah, yeah. but." Yeah, he did a lot of running, not any punching in that one. <laughs> yeah, but. I mean, like, I mean, to be fair, I mean, he is Canadian, so 
I can see where the casting goes right there. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, they were the adaptation of the comics was proposed. It was following the release of the first volume because it, it went over so well. Mm-hmm. And at first, O'Malley um, wasn't really sold on it. He didn't really know what to think about making a film adaptation because he was expecting it to turn into a full-on action comedy with some actor he hated. Ultimately, though, he didn't care because he was a starving artist, and he's like, just give me some money. Yeah. <laughs> um, he completed the first volume of when he, the um, uh, proposal for a film adaptation came when the Oni Press producer Mark Platt had proposed it to him, like right after Volume One came out, because a lot of people noticed that it kind of read like uh, like a scene in a movie. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> Universal, so Universal Studios had the rights, and then they contacted director Edgar Wright, who at that point had just finished Shaun of the Dead, and he agreed. Like, oh, he's like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll adapt this. So. It took a while because at that point, Edgar Wright, um, he, he made Hot Fuzz and that mm-hmm. got, uh, again, that was a movie where like got a very small release in America, but got garnered a huge following, following home video sales. So uh, the casting was announced in um, June 2008 and then filming began March 2009 in Toronto, Canada. All the uh, casting decisions were designed, were um, or actually pointed out by O'Malley during the casting, during during this, during the sessions, he was the one who had like final word on a lot of the, yeah, they, they kept, uh, they had O'Malley really involved in the whole process. Um, which is really cool. Cause when you do watch the film, it feels very much like the comic, which is sometimes that hasn't happened in a lot of other comic. Yeah. A lot of times, um, Especially when it comes to like graphic novels and video games, the the screenwriters and the producers have never even like played the games or read the books. Yeah, they just see money and they that's all they care about. But in this one, Wright and Wright had read the comics and he worked very closely with um, Brian Lee O'Malley to make the movie as as good as it could be. Yeah. Another thing is like this uh, when it came to casting, uh, there really wasn't any studio interference with casting, um, especially when it came to the more like more unknowns, because uh, like they had Michael Sarah, Jason Schwartzman, and um, they had up and comers like Anna Kendrick, um, Ari Plaza, and Brie Larson, and a pre Captain America, Chris Evans. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> His eyebrows are insane. They in that are. Movie. It, like every time, but and yeah, he just so... looks like a douchebag. <laughs> he looks like such a douchebag, and it works. Yeah. So right, uh, he stated that like Universal never really gave him any problems about casting bigger people because, in a way, Michael Sarah had already starred in like two hundred million uh, plus movies, and like so. And also a lot of other people, though they're not like the biggest names, uh, people certainly know who they are. So the studios were pretty much cool with anybody that they cast because most of the people that they got, um, the studios were like, yeah, they'll bring in money. Uh, Yeah. So in the, um, oddly enough, the, the comic was not completed at the time of the film's production. Um, like I said earlier, the, final volume only came out like a couple of weeks before the film mm-hmm. dropped. 
So O'Malley contributed suggestions for the ending and gave the producers his notes for the sixth volume. So he basically told me this is what this is what's probably going to happen. Yeah. And he um but he did state in that the ending was really their ending. And if you've read the the graphic novel, they're relatively similar in the end, in the ending, but it does have it's it, they're very different. And for one and we'll probably get into it a lot more later is that um, how how they really only really adapted like three out of the six graphic novels, mm-hmm. at least like full on. They're there. So when the film was um, actually in the film's original ending, um, Scott got back together with Knives. Yeah, because one of the things that a lot that there that Edgar Wright liked was that the two of them had really good chemistry, especially during the final boss battle. Yeah, they were. They worked well, like, character-wise, especially when it came to fighting together, like, they worked well. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was kind of, not necessarily a fan, but uh, he's like, this works, and it makes sense. And so they had test screenings of the film when it was finished, but a lot of the audience were mad that he didn't own it and get back together. Yeah, it was very divided because this is like after the final book in the series was released, um, which is where Scott and Ramona get back together. Um, so a lot of audience members who had read that were very divided because they were like, well, in the in the book, Scott and Ramona get back together, and in this movie, you have him getting back together with knives. Um, and so due to the reaction from the audience... Uh, a new ending was filmed to match the book where Scott and Ramona get back together, which I think, I know I kind of, I like, I like that ending. Yeah. It definitely has more. Um, it's like, you know, he fought for this girl the entire movie and then, but then they both grow as like human yeah. beings. So, so that it's was like, really nice. Okay. And now it, you guys are like starting over as like more emotionally healthy human beings. <laughs> yeah. So, When the film was released, uh, it was released on. It had its first premiere uh, at the San Diego Comic Con on July twenty second, two thousand ten. And after the panel, Wright invited select members of the audience for a screening of the film that was followed by a performance by Metric, which would have been awesome. I think I would have literally shit my pants. <laughs> it's just to, the combo Scott Pilgrim. To those of you who don't know, um, Selena is a hardcore Metric fangirl. I I am. We actually it's actually kind of funny, com- completely off topic, but yeah, we were at the exact same music festival, at, like before we knew each other. It's kind of weird. We went to almost and all we, of the same, same shows, shows, and like almost in the same area. This, but we had we hadn't met at that point. It's, yeah, it's just the universe is weird and the <laughs> small world after all. Yeah, but. Yeah, that was my first time seeing Metric. I didn't cry then, but I was just staring at Emily Haynes in her beautiful glory while she was singing, like, uh, all the new stuff from the album that they had just released. Synthetica. At, yeah, Synthetica. And I was like, yes. And then one of, I had my, one of my friends with me at the time, and she wasn't as jazzed as I was, but I did not care. I was jazzed for the both of us. And then the second time I saw them, I kind of cried. But that was just because I was emotional that day. And it was just a very nice concert. 
Anyways. So the film received <laughs> a wide release in North America on August 13, 2010. And despite getting some really great reviews. Really great reviews. Like, it was overall very, like, all positive. Yeah. It was a bomb. It grossed forty-seven point seven. It grossed almost forty-eight million dollars against a production budget of about ninety million, not including the marketing. Yeah. And so, Universal was really mad about that. Um, a lot of people think that like it was just marketed wrong because it was marketed as just this action comedy when there was a lot more to it, and mm-hmm. they could have they could have done a better job of marketing it towards the um, the indie music scene. Oh, for because real. Because that's like one of the one of the big uh, elements of the film is that it kind of it it pokes fun at and sort of is a bit of a critique in ways of the at the time DIY indie music scene, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the band Sex Bob Om and how they kind of sound like Sonic Youth. <laughs> um, We're Sex with Bob. We're here to make you feel sad and, and think get- about death and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so. All the music oddly, I listened to in high school. So, oddly enough, even though it didn't do well money-wise, it was still like a word-of-mouth success. Yeah, it, it reached cult classic status relatively quickly. It was it didn't like sleep for a bit, and people would be like, "Oh wow, did you see Scott Pilgrim?" It was very much like, "How did how are people missing Scott Pilgrim?" Yeah. So the. Some of the best, no, some of the best um, stories I've heard about that is that um, at the end of August, at that point, the movie was already out of theaters, but it was selling out midnight showings at the New Beverly Cinema in California with right in attendance among among the among the um, film's early. Um, oh God, what's the word? Why can't I talk today? Uh, among we the, can never talk. That's, that's just the fact. Among, <laughs> among the people who we were, can never talk ever. <laughs> yeah, words are hard. So, <laughs> among the um, early praisers of the film was Quentin Tarantino, who was like just telling all of his friends, and even Guillermo del Toro was was like trying to like it was at conventions at the time, being like, everyone needs to see this movie. The fish fucker himself. The fish fucker himself. Everybody. I love that. <laughs> this is before he was into fish fucking, so... Well, no. He he stated in an interview... This Sorry, this is sidetracking. Oh, Abe Sapien. That, that he, as a kid, he saw Creature in the, the Black, Black Lagoon, Lagoon, and he was all about the fish. Not, like, sexually. But <laughs> he was very drawn to the character of the fish, and then he's like, I'm gonna do that, but make it but sexual. But with sex. Yeah. <laughs> that's, perhaps that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. Anyways, back to Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, so um, the film ended up doing yeah. really well in the home video market. Uh, yeah, it still does very well, and it's really finally found its audience. And like one one of the things that a lot of people don't really give the movie credit for is that it did end up making back its budget partially because of the home video market, mm-hmm. and it's been and it sold very well. So. <sighs> How we get into the music? Because yeah, because just the the music aspect of of Scott Pilgrim is such a huge element of it. The soundtrack by itself is fantastic. Just all the people who contributed to the music of the movie. It was just it's such a cool collection of artists. Um, so yeah, so a lot, actually, a lot, a lot, a lot oh, of them are it. just are are are. are, 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 are 
Any or I could take this. One. <laughs> a lot it. of the bands are Canadian. Yeah, uh, Metric, which... Broken Social Scene, as well as um, Plum Tree, and mm-hmm. some of the other songs that I really are really great because I, I have. This is one of those movies where um, my the, like my all time favorites are the ones where I go out, I buy the movie poster, I buy the Blu-ray, I'll buy the soundtrack on CD and vinyl. <laughs> CD and vinyl. vinyl. I make sure they get all my money. So I have uh, a beautiful um, pressing of the soundtrack on vinyl. That, Jealous. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite songs on it, actually, it's um, by the Beachwood Sparks, who are kind of a um, kind of a surf rocky, or like a, like a surf band in the early 2000s. And it was a song by, you, by Your Side. And it's... Uh, like it's a, the drums, early drums? Have you heard of the drums? A long time ago, I heard of the drums. It's the first time I've heard that word in like four years. Uh, well, they're not that great now. But <laughs> <laughs> earlier, uh, yeah, 2011, 12, fantastic. Anyways. Yeah. So, but they're kind of beach rock. The other, the big name that they got for the film was Beck. You know, yep. Beck. Well, they also had uh, the Radiohead producer, uh, Nigel, Nigel Godrich. Yeah. Godrich, yeah. Um, and he produced all of this. Um, besides, uh, he, he helped do a lot of the eight-bit music that plays mm-hmm. throughout it, especially in the uh, opening, uh, the opening of the film, which just sets the mood perfectly for the film. Was just an eight-bit version of the Universal Studio song, you know, as well as in the in the uh, closing in the credits when yeah. that plays. So. Yeah, so Beck, you're saying yes. Beck. He wrote and composed the music that was played by Sex bob um, alongside with um, Brian LeBarton playing drums and bass for the band for the film score and soundtrack. And there's a fun little there's a fun little special feature on the Blu-ray where they teach you how to play the songs. Ooh. And it's like really funny because they're all like really easy songs to play. Because that's kind of the joke, is that Sex bob is not the greatest band, really. Mm. They're very... <laughs> like, one of the jokes in the in the film is uh, one of the band members, uh, uh, Weber's... Oh, Stephen Stills, that's the character's name. Yep, uh, the talent. Yeah, he... He tells Scott that Ramona has to go because now she knows that they're not a good, that they're shit band. <laughs> yeah. He's like, did we, we gotta suck? get rid of Level her. with me. Do we suck? I don't know. Did you? She has to go. She has to go. <laughs> so um, cast members, uh, including Allison Pill and Johnny Simmons, all had to learn how to play their respective instruments and spent time rehearsing as a band with Sarah, Michael Sarah, who already had played bass before filming began. Yeah, so, but this was, happened like a month before mm-hmm. filming, so that's a lot. They also this sing on, this, on the film soundtrack, too. Yeah. So. And it's not bad. It's not, no. it's not shitty. It's, no. Honestly, it's I'd, be, a nice I'd be in a band touch. like that. I'd be in a band like that. I kind of like that kind of music, so yeah. it's crazy. Let's just make the noise band. <laughs> what do you say, Graham? Let's just make a noise band. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to hand this one to you because this is your shit. Yeah, because I'm going to talk about metric and I'm going to really try not to gush, but I already did that. So She's going to gush. I'm going to gush. So one thing. So metric is 
was the inspiration for the fictional band uh, Clash at Demonhead, uh, which has, which is, let me back up. Okay, so Clash at Demonhead in the book and in the movie um, is headed by Scott's ex-girlfriend, Natalie, now called MV. MV Adams, yep. MV Adams. And so basically... She was kind of in the film, she was kind of modeled off of Metric's lead singer, Emily Haynes. I love her to death. <laughs> and um, the band Clash at Demon Hen was kind of ma- modeled off of them, um, just like in looks, except for they kind of push it because Metric, they're not, a, they're, they're stylized visually, but a little toned down from how they are presented in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then. Brie Larson, she actually provided the vocals for the song Black Sheep, um, which is a metric song that they play in the film. Um, and then the soundtrack just features the metric version of so- of the song with Hans is singing it. Um, metric had already had um, the song Black Sheep written before the film because they, uh, they had written it for their album Fantasies, uh, which came out in, oh my gosh, 2000 and, I want to say, six? Fantasies? Oh, 2009. 2009. An upside down six. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, so they had written Black Sheep for Fantasies, but it didn't make the final cut. And so they, when they were approached about being involved in the in the film, they were like, wait a second, we have this song that actually perfectly works with your film, and then handed them Black Sheep, and they're like, holy shit, this works perfectly. And it's just a lovely... It's such a... I just love Metric so much. And so anytime... That scene pops up, I have to sing along because I just can't help it. Yeah. And the fun thing is, like, at their concerts, um, they play Black Sheep because everyone is such a fan of the song and the film that they're like, they just, like, they don't have to sing it, but they sing it anyways. Yeah. And then everyone just gets into it where they're like, yes, hello again. <laughs> yes. It's, fanta- it's fantastic. It's awesome. It's funny, I remember watching, I remember when they were promoting Fantasies, because that's my favorite Metric album, and um, it is watching them on, watch, I think it was watching them on Letterman, and that was like how I first heard about them, and then obviously through Scott Pilgrim and seeing them in Lollapalooza. Yeah. Um, when so, Lollapalooza was not like, hand me your liver and your kidney, maybe toss in your heart too to go. To see <laughs> just top 40 music and no, no eclectic. Well, sometimes they still have some. They have some good stuff on the lineup. So, I, I I believe that the new lineups are nowhere near as good as the older ones. The older ones because they had like they more. Really they had more eclectic stuff. It was so, uh, yeah. Anyways, we'll not talk about so, that. Some of the things that um. So we watched the movie last night and just to refresh because I had re- I had recently seen it and Mac can quote the whole thing, but we we're yes. like we got to watch it so it's fresh. Yes. So, so among the things that. Are that are, are they're done better in the book, I think, than they're done in the in the graphic in the movie, is that um, in the graphic novels, especially in like volumes four, five, and six, they kind of point out that Scott's not as 
angelic as he mm -hmm. comes off as, at first. That he's yeah. He has his own. He's he's kind of a he. He's kind of he used to be a bit of a dick, um, especially with the way that his relationship with Envy um, Kim Pine. Oh, and Kim, yeah. Um, it becomes very obvious that um, Scott just handled both of those relationships very badly and never really blamed himself for it. Until never took responsibility for never took responsibility. hurting those two. Yeah. And part of that's part of what the what the grand like theme of the books are is that it's about a man who's like in love with someone but has to get his own life together and kind of be, be, give closure to the rest of his relationships in order to move on. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Envy, slash grow as a person. Yeah, honestly, Envy Adams is well. She has a much bigger part in the in the graphic novels. Um, you get a lot of backstory about why they broke up and why what happened and how she herself becomes kind of a um, a pawn to the main antagonist of the film, Gideon Graves. Mm -hmm. And it's truly, it, it really is kind of a uh, because they show up a lot more in the graphic novels. Um, when like the final battle happens, there's a lot more at stake because of that. And there's also the, um, I mean, obviously the art. It's almost like this movie just like became live action out of out of the comics. Yeah, it's like okay, this is I know what you're trying to yeah. say. But okay, this is gonna be a terrible. This is gonna be a life. terrible metaphor. Do you, uh, do you, have you ever seen? Anyway. Have you ever seen the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle? No. All right. It's a terrible. It's it's not <laughs> terrible. It's just bizarre. But basically, all the actors look are like look almost are cartoonish. Look exactly like the cartoon characters, mm -hmm. and that's almost exactly how I see the Scott Pilgrim. Uh, yeah. The film but not in a weird way where you're no. like. It's, it's but in ways it looks like they just pop right off of the graphic novel. Yeah. Right everything is very. Everything in that world is so stylized. Like, all the graphic tees are perfectly thought out, like, as to what they're, why he's wearing And that there's or, stuff in frame, there's, like, framed stuff for, like, um, X's. Every, there's, like, seven X's in, in frame at a lot of points. Mm -hmm. And lots of mentioning, uh, like, to when when, she, when he fights Todd Ingram, he's wearing a big three on his T-shirt. When he fights... Well, yeah, Todd yeah, Ingram's when he wearing fights, a three. Uh, ex-boyfriend number two, Lucas Lee, when they first introduce him, he's in a trailer that has a big two on it. Mm -hmm. And then when they go to fight, uh, what's her name? The girl. Um, oh my gosh. I feel really bad. I can't remember her name. But Mae Whitman, basically. Yeah. Her from Arrested Development. <laughs> um, it's like a big, there's a big four on the club building. and Yeah, there's just like touches to that help just the help really they help really point out that this is a movie and this is really it's just so much fun it's a, it's a lot more it just it, it it makes it so it's a lot more fun for rewatches cuz you can catch little things yeah it definitely like the more you watch it it definitely it, if you're an active viewer like you pick up those little details which i think really matter it kind of fleshes out uh and adds to the story and the ideas that are uh, being presented like um, I think it's when he's fighting the vegan dude um, Envy's new boyfriend he's wearing a shirt that says zero and like he's always drinking like uh, Coke Zeros because he's he thinks of himself 
Well, not really. He's considered like he a is zero. the zero boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, zero boyfriend. Yeah. So, so and another good another thing that um again because it's a movie, they can't really go into a lot of the um the back the backstories, especially when it came to Gideon Graves because he only really shows up at the end of around um volume five. Yeah, and in the film, like we only get glimpse of he's just they portray him as a douche, and he's like. They give, they're like, here he is. This is Gideon. He's a douche. That's why he's bad. And it's like, and then you kind of get the uh, hint later. It's like, oh, yeah, has a chip on Ramona's head. That's kind of evil. He went out of his way to form this evil league of exes. That's excessive. What's what's (laughs) interesting, though, is that in the graphic novels, it's kind of implied that Gideon was, he was kind of gaslighting Ramona. He was really, um, I mean, Ramona herself has um, has some battle scars, and what's funny is that when the movie was being made, uh, Brian Lee O'Malley gave each of the uh, of the characters like little bits of information that only he knows about that he hasn't put in the comics. So, for example, in the graphic novels, Ramona always wears a shoelace that's tied around her neck, and the story is because she used to have a brother, and the brother died when he was really young, and so she has his shoelace that she has around her neck at all times, and among other things. Um, Oh God, Aubrey Plaza's character. Um, oh, uh, Ju- Julie. 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 Um, the reason why Julie is so mad, so pissed off all the time at Scott, is because she she liked him in college and she yeah. was into him, and he didn't have the same feelings. So that kind of is why she's so ah, angering at him. Why she's so Aubrey Plaza at him? Yeah. So, Classic Aubrey Plaza, yeah. just so that, angry swearing. Yeah. I love it. So. <laughs> So back to Gideon, um, they really, what really makes it um, point out, what's a good point thing, uh, words are hard. Okay. What's a really good thing that they point out <laughs> is that each of the exes is like just, un, they're unable to get over their own insecurities. And most of, uh, especially volume four is Scott getting over a lot of his insecurities. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of his, that's the kind of, that's his high ground compared to theirs is that his, he's available. He's able to deal with his problems because at the final battle with Gideon, Gideon is showing off, showing himself to be just as much of a insecure prick as Scott, Scott kind of, kind of was. was yeah. And, and like a small, a little small thing is that when, um, they fight, the in the in the movie his whole thing is you know how long it took to get to get that list of all the boy of all the exes take two hours <laughs> in the graphic novel I think it's a lot funnier after they break up he gets really mad and posted a drunken rant on Craigslist and that's how all the exes get involved is that oh. is through is through Craigslist <laughs> so oh, the, uh, just a quick thing going off of. Uh, that just not the joke bit, but talking back about Gideon and um, Scott Pilgrim is you kind of get a sense. They kind of give you a sense of all that, but it's not as fleshed out obviously as the book. Um, But for Scott to finally defeat Gideon, he has to earn like self-respect. Yeah. And then once he, once he respects himself and kind of, was like oh shit okay i recognize these things i've uh, like i have to t- 
take ownership for my own actions, that's when he's able to kind of defeat the exes because the exes haven't been able to do that. Well, the final um, Gideon. Yeah. But. Yes, indeed. So, in conclusions, what does the movie mean to you? It's just a fun time. It's honestly just the blend of the music, uh, the art, just the casting, the editing is on point. It's just, it's very Edgar Wright, but in a, it's very, I don't know. I just love Edgar how. Edgar Wright really knows how to do visual comedy. It, he really does. And it really, it reads like a comic book, which is really cool. Cause like they add the, like when Scott Pilgrim is thunking his head against the, this pole after, um, I can't remember. I think it was after one of the fights, but that like the words thunk thunk come up when he's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, it's, like ding uh, dong, no clue gets it. Yeah, it's it's very visual and it's but it's not like campy when it comes to the jokes or it's just very witty and I don't know. It's just such a fun blend. Like I don't think I'll ever get sick and tired of it. It's just it's so quotable. Yes. I completely agree. And I just, it just, hold, I hold it so close to my heart because of like the situation I was in when I saw it. Cause like it was right when I, I myself went through a big transformation and I went from like, I went from an annoying uh, long haired metal kid to <laughs> I lightened the fuck up that week. <laughs> that specific week. It was that week. Was yeah. I'm like- not, I'm not even, I'm not even lying or joking. It's, 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 that's, that's kind of how I was. So I saw it the second time with like one of my best friends in Madison and we just had, it was just such a good time. Mm-hmm. And we spent the next like three weeks trying to exp- tell everybody we knew to see this goddamn movie. And they didn't listen. And then finally they'd watch it on home video. And they're like, why didn't you tell me all this? And I'm like, oh, well, I, I did. did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's so fun. And along with the comics too, like uh, O'Malley's uh, s- style is just so easy to read. And uh, it's just hilarious. It's very engaging along with his other work uh, too. So, also, as an adaptation, I think it's like one of the best adaptations. Oh, definitely. That I I feel like on our list of best adaptations, it's definitely like up there. Yes. I think it would be like number one out of everything that we've talked about on the podcast so far. I would say it'd probably be number one. I'd say number two. Uh, what would you it. put at number one? It. Oh, it. Regarding um, regarding part one. Regarding part. Yeah. Uh. I would have to put it as number two because there are a few things where I'm like, it's good. I wouldn't say that it's not good. It's definitely good. It's just there, there are a few things when it comes to certain characters where I'm like, I just wish you'd done more. Okay. Whereas so, with Scott Pilgrim, I'm like, I can see, I don't know, like I don't have that beef when it comes to certain characters. My whole thing is that like I feel a lot of the characters in the books are a lot better. I'm, we're talking Scott Pilgrim here. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of the characters are better fleshed out in the comics. Obviously, you know, they didn't have enough time to make the movie as long, <laughs> that long or, yeah. Or they didn't, and they didn't want it to be like directly like from the books. Mm-hmm. However, I feel like that a lot of the characters just, they're so much better on, 
on page in pages than they are on on screen. Which is, but fair. I still love them the way mm-hmm. they are. Like I feel like they got the essence of a lot of the characters. Um, I I do feel like they did kind of falter with some of the with the villains. They kept the villains pretty one dimensional. Yeah. Um, whereas everyone else is a little bit more fleshed out. Um, I have a little. But bit. for for that, I I think it's still just like it's still pretty great because you can love the books and love the movie. I also have one little bit of fun facts. Ooh, a fun fact. Um, so May Whitman plays the fourth evil ex, Roxanne. Roxanne. That's her name, Roxy. Um. The actress got her one of her earliest roles was she played the president's daughter in Independence Day. <laughs> so like that, that's always funny. You see her like as that little girl, and then you see her in Arrested Development and Scott Pilgrim. So I thought that was a fun little, a fun little tidbit. tidbit. So Selena, do you have any ideas of what's going to happen this summer? A lot of adaptations. A lot. Yep. <laughs> what I'm going to try to do, um, I'm definitely going to start reading some more bigger stuff this summer. Um, just just to test myself, challenge myself. But also I want to read some smaller stuff so we can have some yeah, some more, um, some shorter but more in-depth episodes. It's summertime, so that means we got to crack out all our summer reads. I already have a huge pile. Our summer I'm reads so and our beers and our... I'm so excited to read Poor life fun. choices. I haven't read for fun in so long. <sighs> Me neither. Anyways. <laughs> so. Yeah. But that was Scott Pilgrim. That was Scott Pilgrim. Everyone go watch it or read it. It's so fantastic. Do it. It's delightful. So thanks for listening. And until next time, this, this has been, been Time, time to, to Adapt. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.